0: morning, church family. Take your Bibles with me, if you will, and turn to the book of Mark. The book of Mark. And we are going to take a stab at the beauty of the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus today. The title of the message, however, is a glimpse of the Trinity. So we're going to be looking at what is revealed to us um, in this portion of Mark about the Trinitarian Godhead. So we're going to take a look at that together. Um, So we're going to be in verses 9 through 13, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Um, So if you're able to, please stand with me in honor of the one who gave us this word as we read these few verses together. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 reads, Now it happened that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit drove him to go out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity for us to gather as a body. We thank you for your grace that has brought us together in redemption, united us with your Son in grace. And I just pray that we will do all that we do for your glory today, that if there Be any sins that we must confess, Lord, I pray that we will do that, um, that we would look to your word for cleansing, look to what Christ has done, um, and rest in that. I pray for me, Lord, that you would remove any distractions or hindrances, remove any nerves, uh, help me to preach the word boldly and correctly, um, and that the information that you would have for us to learn here in these few verses uh, would be accurately uh, preached. We love you and praise you and thank you for your grace and your holy name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. <clears throat> All right, so in this particular section of Mark, uh, last week, if you guys recall, we, we opened with the first eight verses after our introduction time. Um, and this week, we're going to finish out the prologue of Mark. The prologue of Mark um, is verses one through thirteen, some would add on a couple additional verses, but I think really the prologue finishes uh, at verse thirteen. So we're going to finish out the, the introduction, if you will, of Mark, explaining to us what is going to happen and what he's going to be teaching about and writing about in his gospel. Um, many of you may have verses nine through thirteen uh, with a heading. Some of our Bibles have headings, so it, it probably reads the baptism of Jesus. Um, and yes, this is the section that records in Mark the baptism of Jesus. But unlike the other Gospels, Mark has the fewest words to say about the baptism of Jesus. He just basically says Jesus is baptized. So the actual physical act of him being baptized is very small in comparison to the rest of the verses that we're going to look at today. Um, In fact, the main thing that we see here is what occurs after the baptism um, with The heavens opening and and the voice from heaven speaking and the the spirit coming down. And really the main point of what Mark is writing about here can be seen in light of a glimpse of the Trinity. We see all three persons of the Trinitarian Godhead here in this passage. Now, many times, um, and maybe if you've grown up in church for a long time, the Trinity is one of the most difficult doctrines of the Christian faith. Um, it's very, very hard for our finite minds to wrap around the idea of three and one. Very, very hard. Um, and in fact, a lot of times it's so difficult. I, I've grown up in church many, many years, my my whole life since I was far back as I can remember, and I can count on one hand the number of sermons that I've heard about the Trinity, um, because it's just so difficult and so easy to, to to frankly, it's so easy to do a heresy. Just really, uh, you have to be so careful when you're teaching on it. And so my goal today is to, from a very high level, look at this from a Trinitarian viewpoint and show in scripture, this is one of the most beautiful and evident places where you get to see all three persons of the Trinity interacting together uh, in one context. And so we're gonna look at it from a glimpse of the Trinity. That's our, that's our sermon title today, A Glimpse of the Trinity. Um, and it, it is it is really it's one of those situations where in, in here in the baptism, it not only gives us a view into the Trinity, but it also signals the confirmation of Jesus's sonship and commencement of his servanthood. And so there's there's going to be a lot of different aspects that we're going to look at today um, from a, from a fulfillment of prophecy and also the, the Trinity, as I mentioned. Um, the Trinity is often seen as a distinct function. Um, you can see really see it differentiated in the work of salvation, where God elects and chooses before time began, God the Father. God the Son came redeemed with his penal substitutionary atonement, and the Spirit applies. So very easy to remember is God chose, God the Father chose, Jesus redeemed, the Spirit applies. And so you can see the work of the Trinity in salvation. And to to make sure that we're all on the same page, I'm going to give a very high-level 30,000-foot overview of where the Trinity came from. Super high. Okay, we're not not going deep here. I do want to tell you, though, if you do want to go deep in the Trinity, we're going to be there in our church history class very, very quickly. We're almost to the the Council of Nicaea, um, where our creed came from. Um, And we're also going to be touching on that in Sunday school very soon, too, because that is an attribute of God. So if you want to go deeper, just be be looking out for those because we'll be there pretty soon. But ultimately, the Trinity, as, as by way of introduction, the Trinitarian position comes from looking at the Old Testament. Um, throughout history, you see this as well. Um, but the Jews were considered monotheistic. right? Deuteronomy 6.4 is uh, one of the, it's part of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Right. So we know God revealed himself to the Jews as one. Now, when you come to the New Testament, you then see that God reveals himself as son, right? And, it, and then he reveals himself as spirit. So, so now we have in Scripture, in, in God's breathed word, you see in Scripture both him being referenced as one and him revealing himself as three. So what do you do with that? You get a headache is what you do with that. So what happens is we have to rectify that as best we can from Scripture. Where does, the, where does the authority for the church come from? Scripture. Where do we submit ourselves even when we don't understand something to a full extent? Scripture. And so we as humanity have to take what God has revealed to us and to the best of our ability, make them work. And that's where the Council of Nicaea, in a phrase, there's much more to it, but again, when we get there in church history, the Council of Nicaea had to figure out, they were called together to figure out, because there were other bishops in that time, trying to figure out what, what, how do we do this? And that's a lot of heresies came from. Sometimes they would take away from Christ's humanity and overextend his deity. They would take away from his deity and raise up his humanity. Uh, they would say the spirit wasn't actually part of God to try to rectify everything. And so you have all these different things coming out of all these different places. And ultimately, there was a council called to put a put an end to the debate. To, this is where we need to get it. And believe it or not, that's when Saint Nicholas punched a guy in the face for saying that's where it all comes from. And that's so. That's another story that we'll talk about when we get there. But ultimately, where the Trinity comes from is that we have to submit to Scripture and understand that the phrase, one God in essence, three persons revealed in functionality comes from. That's where it comes from. We are three, God is three persons in one essence. And so to give you an idea of where we had to come from that, I want to make sure you understood Scripture reveals God as both. So we have to submit to God being revealed as both, one and three. And so that's where a 30,000-foot view, that's where the Trinity has come from. There's all kinds of scriptures that I can point to, but that's not our main point today. I just wanted to make sure that we had an accurate view of um, correct Orthodox Trinitarianism as we begin to go through the text here. Last point of introduction here before we dig into the passage, is this particular text um, has a very heavy eschatological um, meaning to it. In other words, this is, this is the, the kingdom of God, the judgment of God coming, and there's three reasons why this has a very heavy eschatological viewpoint or end times viewpoint, or um, eschatology simply means the, the study of end things. And so when we think about the study of end things, there's three things that occur, and we're going to take a look at each one of these. The heavens opening, the Spirit descending, and the heavenly voice speaking. There's three different things that, from a Jewish perspective, from the Old Testament, I'm going to show you why, but these three different things mean that the kingdom of God is at hand. The judgment of God has come. It's the heavens opening, the Spirit descending, and the heavenly voice speaking. So let's dig in together here as we look through these Four or five verses, excuse me, five verses. And then we're going to look at the, the the baptism of Jesus in a different way than what the other gospel writers may have written as they extended it out so far. Mark is being very particular in what he's saying. So, point number one is the Son in verse nine. Point number one is the Son. Verse 9 reads, Now it happened that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. John is now tying in together here his first part of his prologue and the part about referencing Jesus. We talked about last week that John was out by the Jordan. Um, There was people coming out from Judea. uh, There was people coming out from Jerusalem. And now John is saying, after all these things, now it happened. It happened. He's very intense. He's very, matter of fact, now it happened. So I'm telling you, last week he said, I'm telling you about the one that is coming that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now it happened that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth. Now we know that Jesus is the Son of God. If I can draw your attention back up to the first verse of Mark chapter 1, we know that it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark has already very clearly said, Jesus is the Son of God. But now he's referencing the Son of God coming from a no-name town in Galilee. This isn't someone from Judea or Jerusalem. This is someone from Nazareth. Who comes from Nazareth? In those days, no one does. If you think in our modern context, just think of somewhere, all of us grew up in an area when we were kids or maybe young adults that we can think of that that person came from so-and-so, right? You, you just, you, whether it be a high school rivalry, whatever the case may be, like there's, there's just that, there's some location that maybe the idea of Nazareth would conjure up in your mind of, okay, I remember this kid was from that place. That wasn't, that, no, that was kind of a no-name place. We all have that idea. So this is, the, this is the idea of Nazareth in Jesus' day. Nazareth was the no-name, nothing good comes from there. Nazareth. And yet Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. And he came to be baptized. Has anyone else ever struggled with the idea, maybe at previous times in your life, or maybe when you didn't study the scriptures as much, or were early in your Christian walk, and you go, why did Jesus have to be baptized? He was sinless. I get baptized because I profess Christ, and this is my, my union. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? Anybody ever, it's just just me, who's questioned that sometime in their life? Okay, all right, good. Seeing what it represents based on who it was that was baptizing him. If you guys recall from last week, John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet, right? We went through and established that very, very well. John is the last Old Testament prophet. And what he is pronouncing to the people of Israel is judgment and a call for repentance. Saying, in this particular case, you need to be cleansed. Remember, you guys, we we talked about the nation of Israel having to cleanse themselves, in garments, having, having to look to repentance, having ceremonial washing, and all the things that go along with that. Well, in this particular case, Jesus was coming. The reason for his baptism is that he was coming to identify himself with the people of Israel. He was coming to identify himself under the viewpoint, the symbol of repentance. What was the symbol of repentance in Old Testament Israel? Cleansing. Cleansing with water and a sacrifice. Jesus didn't need to be baptized outside of the fact that he was showing himself to be the true Israel. He was aligning himself. He was showing the people of Israel, I am baptizing myself, not because I have to from a need of repentance, but because I am identifying myself as the true Israelite. I am coming saying, I will take the judgment of God upon myself. He is literally voluntarily putting on and agreeing and submitting himself to the judgment that John has been preaching about. If you remember from the other gospels, if you've ever read the stories of the other gospels, John has some very biting words for the nation of Israel and its leaders. He calls them a brood of vipers. And so when we look at what John is actually preaching as the last Old Testament prophet, there's significance in the fact that Jesus is submitting himself to the coming judgment. He is taking the place of Israel. He is aligning himself as the true Israelite. And this was a big deal for the apostles. In fact, whenever they went to replace Judas Iscariot, after he had hung himself, in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, the litmus test for anyone that was eligible to be a replacement for Judas Iscariot Iscariot, Iscariot, was as follows. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning with the baptism of John, until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us in his resurrection. The litmus test for the apostles to replace Judas Iscariot was someone who was there at the baptism, knew about the baptism. This was a big deal because this is the commencement of the son's work. It's been said, passively receiving the sign of repentance on behalf of the people of God, into submitting, in submitting to John's baptism. And John's baptism, as I mentioned, is a call to repentance from an Old Testament prophet. So in submitting to John's baptism, Jesus acknowledges the judgment of God upon Israel. At the same time, his baptism signifies that his mission will be to endure the judgment of God. Jesus comes to John as the true Israelite whose repentance is perfect. He is the beloved son, but he came to the wilderness because sonship must be reaffirmed in the wilderness. Do you recall last week when I talked about the significance of the wilderness for where John is? The significance of the wilderness when it impacts the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel became the sons of God, the son of God in the wilderness, did they not? They came out to the wilderness at the mountain. God gave them the law. They chose not to Obey that law, and then spent 40 years in the wilderness, didn't they? And now, here Christ is in the wilderness, affirming his sonship. Do you see the shadow versus substance that's being fulfilled in Christ? John's appearance in the wilderness, his call to repentance, and his baptism signify that the time has come when God will execute a decisive judgment from which a new Israel will emerge. Jesus acknowledges this conviction, which has roots in the prophetic tradition. He comes to John as one willing to assume the brunt of God's judgment. His baptism makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? It's not the fact that he needs to repent. In fact, the very fact he doesn't need to repent is why it's marvelous that he gets baptized. Because he is submitting himself. He is showing Israel, I am here to fulfill the redemptive plan. I am an Israelite. I am the true Israel, and I'm submitting to the judgment of God. It's very significant what the Son is doing here. And I want to show you some of the Old Testament passages where this comes from so that you can see I'm not just making connections to make connections. This is is coming straight from the Old Testament. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 10. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 10. Before Israel could be consecrated to Yahweh, Exodus 19.10 reads, Yahweh also said to Moses, go to the people and set them apart as holy today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Then in Isaiah 32.15, we're going to be a lot in Isaiah today, so just be ready if you're a note taker because there'll be a lot. And it's not because I want to give you so much and, and, and try to make you right fast and or anything. I, I, I truly want each one of us to see that Christ is the fulfillment of everything from the redemptive history. So Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 15, it says the Spirit is now going, because the Spirit is now going to descend upon him. And we're going to tackle that next. But Isaiah 32, 15 reads, Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful orchard, and the fruitful orchard is counted as a forest. Isaiah 44.3 continues the idea. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 3. It reads, For I will pour out water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry land. I will pour out my spirit on your seed and my blessing on your offspring. And lastly, Isaiah chapter 63, verses 10 through 14. And this is, this is the linchpin to show that Christ is, is fulfilling. Mark is trying to record what Christ is fulfilling. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 10 through 14 reads, But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore He turned Himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Then his people remembered the ancient days of Moses where he, excuse me, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who split the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness? They did not stumble. As the cattle which go down into the valley, the spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So I read those prophecies to you now as a whole to show you the progression that Isaiah is making. The the progression that Israel has made. We see the Exodus, Moses writing the Exodus as the pillar, the start of what we would know as Judaism. Isaiah being the, the, the most significant prophet. So you may be sitting there going, what does this have to do with Jesus getting baptized? Hold on, I'm going to show you. So don't check out on me yet. I wanted to show you the, the prophecies first so that we can then see where this is going. Because truly, as some have said, he, Jesus associates himself with sinners and ranges himself in the ranks of the guilty not to find salvation for himself, not on account of his own guilt in his flight from the approaching wrath, but because he is at one with the church and the bearer of divine mercy. We know from these prophecies, someone has to come to do this. We know there, there has to be. Who is this one that is coming? So, as point number one, the son is the one that is coming. The son is coming. And the, the, really, the application for this is for us to remember that Jesus accepts the coming judgment for his people in our place. The sonship to God that must be renewed by the people with a call to repentance has been proclaimed and Christ is now the sacrificial lamb setting in motion what is necessary for redemption to occur. That is Christ. We get to rest in what the Son came to do. We see here at the beginning of Mark, I am the Son of God. Christ is the Son of God, and he comes to submit himself visually to baptism. But that's not all. After the baptism, now we see some other things occur. So point number two, the Spirit in verse 10. So Christ has submitted to the baptism. He's coming up out of the water. Let's read verse 10 together. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. The spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now I read some of these Isaiah prophecies. We're going to look at a few more. But there's some things I want to draw your attention to. Remember remember earlier in our introduction, I talked about the sky opening up as as part of the judgment of God, the eschatological end times that the Old Testament prophets were pointing towards, the, the day of our Lord. Mark is the only one that uses this language. In the original language that Mark describes here with the heavens opening, he actually uses a term that means tearing apart. It's much more aggressive than what the other gospel writers use. And it's significant that he uses this because it's the exact same language that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 64.1 when he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Oh, that you would tear apart the heavens and come down. Do you think that Mark is making a connection here to the one that has come down? Isaiah prophesied we need someone to tear apart the heavens and God to come down. Mark says, here he is. Here he is. The heavens are torn apart. They're ripped apart and here is God himself here. The Spirit is coming down upon him. And that's not even the most amazing thing. This same language, the exact same language used by Mark, by Isaiah, is the same language that is used to have the idea of the Red Sea being split apart. The symbolage of the Red Sea and the baptism of salvation and redemption are almost endless. You can make connections for hours. It also is the exact same term for the cleaving of the rock that Moses did to provide water for the Israelites, to sustain them in the wilderness the exact same imagery. And there's multiple other prophets that use the exact same imagery. And to tie this all together, Mark uses the exact same word in Mark chapter 15, 38 through 39, when he ties the end of his book to the beginning of his book. As we mentioned last week, he does this often. But in Mark chapter 15, 38 through 39, he says, and the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The exact same language. It was torn apart. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. Do you think Mark is trying to tell us something with his word choices? I think he is. He's trying to tell us that this one that is being baptized, this one upon whom the Spirit is going to be poured out, is the very one that Isaiah prophesied. Though the, the same idea of tearing apart these heavens and God coming down is what God did to save Israel from the Egyptians and the Red Sea, what God did to provide for Israel in the wilderness. God tears apart the divide between his people and himself. And His Son is here to do that work. Now as part of that, we see that immediately coming out of the water, He saw the heavens opening. So we know, now we've talked about the the tearing apart of the heavens and what that signifies. And then the Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. Only, only the Son of God and His purity could house the Spirit of God on earth again. So I'm going to give you some more some symbolism between the shadow and the substance. So the nation of Israel was chosen to represent and house the Spirit of God on earth. We have the tabernacle. We have the temple. The nation of Israel was to house the Spirit of God on earth. And at the end of his judgment... Some 400 years before the time we're reading in Mark, God removed his spirit from the nation of Israel. That was their judgment. They broke the covenant. God removed his spirit from them, and he was silent for over 400 years. Because there was no longer a temple that was worthy. His people had broken the covenant. They had failed, and his spirit was no longer with them. And yet, Jesus, who has now been set up and shown by Mark as the true Israelite, the one that came to be baptized into their need of judgment and their need of repentance, to show himself as the true one of Israel, is now being given and filled with the Spirit of God back on earth. He is now the true cleansed temple. Do you guys remember the semblance that we had last week about Christ redeeming the church the temple of the Spirit, that all of us have the Spirit indwelling in us because Christ redeemed us and purified us. The symbol of the Spirit coming to fill the Son of God is not because there was some sort of split in the Trinity. There's been a lot of poor, just frankly heretical teachings over the idea of the Spirit coming down on Christ. There was no no split in the Trinity. There was no time that, that Christ was separated from the Spirit of God. This is symbolic to show us that Christ is pure and can bring the Spirit of God back to earth. He is the temple that houses the Spirit of God. It does not mean, so I'm going to give you a couple of things that it does not mean because you may hear this in other places. It does not mean that Jesus was just a man until this point in history when the Spirit came upon him and he received his divinity. That is not what this means. And this does not mean that there was some sort of a rift in the Trinity that had to be rectified with this pouring out of the Spirit. This was so that the people around him could see that he was bringing the Spirit of God in fulfillment to the prophecies that were laid out for us in the Old Testament. It was not adoptionism either. This was not the idea of God adopting Jesus into the Trinity or or some such nonsense. There is so much more to this than that. And I want to discuss briefly. I can see your minds mulling over the idea of Christ and the Spirit. Why was there a dove? Anybody ever wondered that? Why the, why the symbol of a dove? There's a lot of debate about the dove. So I'm just going to give you a couple different options and tell you where I land. The symbology of the dove is very, very hard to write down. There's two main ideas. I agree with the first one, which is that this is a reference to Genesis chapter 1, and verse 2. When in creation it says, the Spirit hovered over the waters of darkness. I think it's just simply, that's just a good symbology of the Spirit. It's because he's already been, Talked about as hovering. There's another idea that follows a rabbinic, uh, rabbinic teachings, saying that a dove represents the united community of Israel, and Jesus being the one true Israel. I just I have a hard time looking to extra biblical resources to interpret that particular point. So I just fall there where I think Genesis chapter one verse two, when talking about the spirit hovering, um, is already a good symbol uh, symbolism of a, of a floating or descending, and so the dove takes good form. There. So now we've looked at, together this morning, we've looked at Jesus coming from Nazareth, nowhere to identify himself with the nation of Israel through baptism. We've looked at the heavens opening up, tearing apart, and the symbolism of what Mark was trying to get us to understand. We've looked at the Spirit coming down upon the only true, pure temple that has ushered the Spirit of God back into the world There's a lot going on in five verses, and we've only been through two. So there's a lot going on here. But as we continue, I want us to understand the application of this beautiful picture of the Spirit. Because I think we we can often miss this point today, especially in our culture, especially in Reformed circles. We in Reformed circles have a tendency... To push back against charismatic teachings, to forget that we are indwelt with the same spirit that came upon Christ at his baptism. By his redemptive work, we have the power of the Spirit within us. And if we would understand what that means through Paul's writing, it doesn't mean that we speak in gibberish. It doesn't mean that we level each other's legs. It doesn't mean that we, we heal or grave soak or any of the other nonsense that that has become to interpret. We can push back against those interpretations and still live solely and, and foundationally upon Scripture and understand that we are indwelt with the very Spirit of God that we can stand against temptation, that we are empowered to live according to the scriptures, that he changes us and molds us and directs us and still push back against all the nonsense that that has come to mean by false teachers. Rest in that, church. It should impact us greatly knowing that the beauty of what the Spirit has done in this passage and coming down, what it represents, that self-same Spirit is inside each of you this morning if you are converted and follow Christ. And that is beautiful. My third point is the Father. So we've looked at the Son and what this text holds for Him. We looked at the Spirit and what this text holds for Him. Now we're going to look at the Father in verse 11. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you, I am well pleased. So the third point of our eschatological triplicate here, the heavens ripped open, the Spirit came down, and now the voice of the Father coming from the heavens. The Jews would not have missed any of these things. Mark is making a point that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so with the Father coming down and, or coming out of heaven and speaking, the Father's voice coming out of heaven and speaking, He first pronounces you are my beloved son. There's only two places in Scripture where God addresses Jesus directly in both instances he calls him my son. It is here at his baptism and the transfiguration while he's on the mountain. Only those two places. And in both places he says my son. But here... there is a present tense associated with you are my beloved son. In other words, it's never ending and it doesn't begin. A present tense means it goes on forever. God is in the original language, when you you look at the tense, he is pronouncing this is my forever beloved son. He is eternally my son. Not only is he eternally my son, But because he is my son is why I am well pleased with him. The grammar in this phrase or this sentence in these two phrases is extremely important. You have the present tense of you are my beloved son. That's phrase number one. And the second portion you have in you I am well pleased. And the grammar of that can basically be translated because you are my son, I am well pleased in you. Because you are eternally the son of God, my beloved one, I am well pleased with you. And this is extremely significant again because it fulfills the redemptive prophecies. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22 and 23. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. It reads, then you shall say to Pharaoh, and this is speaking to Moses. So Moses was going in to let Pharaoh know that Israel must be let go. And it was coming down to the end of the plagues. And it says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son. Your firstborn. So who did God just call his son? The nation of Israel. And we've already established two weeks in a row, we've read countless prophecies together saying that Christ is the true son, the true Israelite, the one that could fulfill what Israel could not do. The same language. This also points back to the fulfillment of one of the most Amazing predictions of how Christ would die between Abraham and Isaac. Turn to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2. We're at the point now where Abraham has finally had Isaac. God has finally fulfilled his promise to give Abraham a son a blessed son, the fulfillment of the promise. And in Genesis 22-2, God tells Abraham, Take now your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And so we have Abraham being told by Yahweh to take his son, what will become the nation of Israel. How many times do you read in the Old Testament, our father? So we, we see the nation of Israel, and they reference, we are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the symbolage of Israel. And Abraham takes the nation of Israel, if you will, follow me with this, takes a nation of Israel up to the mountain to sacrifice them. And God says, no. Don't sacrifice the nation of Israel. There's another Redeemer coming. And he gives him the lamb. Now there's many layers to this. I'm not going to break them all down right now. But I want you to understand the assemblage that's here. By God calling Jesus his son, in whom he is well pleased, his beloved son. The same language that he uses for Abraham and Isaac. The the, the symbolage here, the covenantal fulfillment here. Gets deeper and deeper with each new passage that we look at. Do you see how only a sovereign providential God could bring this to pass? Their redemption can only be from someone who's in control of every molecule, molecule of the universe. These things can't just happen. This is not coincidence. These are writers that were separated by centuries, writing the very words of God and and narrating and recounting what God did, and then is coming to a point of fulfillment here in Mark. We have to understand also that only the Son pleases the Father. This language is used throughout Isaiah chapter 45, or excuse me, 40 through 55. So you just want to make a note. Isaiah chapter 40 through 55, you're going to see over and over again. I'm going to give you a couple examples. but those chapters, Mark is wanting to draw our attention to those chapters. God is pointing back to these chapters, <clears throat> excuse me, by the language that He's using. I'm going to read these quickly. I'll give you the reference and read them. You don't have to turn there. Isaiah 42 and verse 1, Isaiah 49 and verse 3, and Isaiah 49 and verse 6. So Isaiah 42 and verse 1, Isaiah 49 and verse 3, and Isaiah 49 and verse 6. So 42.1 reads, Behold my servant who I am uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul was well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 49.3 he said to me you are my servant Israel in whom I will show forth my beautiful glory. Isaiah 49:6 he says it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return i will also give you as a light of the nation of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The hidden servant of Isaiah's chapter 40 through 55 is Christ. The suffering servant, the shadow of the hidden servant is Christ. It is pointing forward to this very moment. God is declaring everything that Isaiah told you about redemption is found in this man, my son, the one that I love. And I really want to draw your attention back to Isaiah 49, verse 6. God is predicting that you and I, you and I as Gentiles would be saved because of the work of this servant. Let me read it to you again. God says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. I will also give you as a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God is saying through Isaiah the prophet, Saving and redeeming Israel is too small of a task for you. You are going to go to take my redemption to the nations. We are sitting in this room because Christ fulfilled that prophecy. And that is beautiful and amazing that God would bring that to pass. The last part of this language is used to fulfill also the Davidic covenant as well. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. This psalm has long been been interpreted and known as a prediction of the Messiah, but in verse 2, excuse me, verse 7 specifically, it says, I will surely tell the, the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the enthronement of the King of Israel. This was used over and over. This particular passage right here, I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 was used to enthrone kings of Israel for years and years. Who was the king of Israel? Who was known as the ultimate king of Israel and representative of of the best king, David? Whom did God make a covenant with that there would be a son of his from his line that would reign on the Israelite throne for eternity? David. Who came as a fulfillment of that prophecy that Matthew shows us, that it comes directly from the lineage of David? Jesus. Who is Mark showing us right here and right now in the wording that God uses, that God, excuse me, Mark is recording the words that God used here to show us that prophecy being fulfilled in Christ at the commencement of his earthly ministry. Christ came for a specific purpose. And in this wording, it's been said that in the sublime declaration to Jesus at the baptism, we encounter fatherly love and filial obedience. Kingship and suffering service. Each is a facet of what it means to be the Son of God. Now, listen to this. To no prophet had words been spoken such as the words to Jesus at the baptism. Abraham was a friend of God, Moses, a servant of God, Aaron, a chosen one of God, David, a man after God's own heart, and Paul, an apostle. Only Israel and the king of Israel, which is the federal head, the representative of the nation of Israel, only Israel and the King of Israel have been called God's sons before. But where Israel failed, Jesus takes its place. There is so much covenantal significance in this event, it's almost mind-boggling. Is anybody else's brain hurt? When I was studying it this week and it was opening up and you get to see the revelation of God showing himself as not only the prophet, the one who used the prophets to speak what would come in redemption, he now brings it to pass and declares with very intent, very specific language to show us, I told you so. And here he is. That is amazing. Now we see here, the point of the Father here is that we see God's plan of redemption is coming together. We see Mark showing us and taking us on a journey so skillfully through what God providentially put into place. You remember when I was giving the introduction of Mark last week and I said for centuries, Mark was looked at as the sub-gospel. He was looked at as the gospel that didn't even need to be looked at. Remember what we quoted from Augustine? Augustine had some pretty intense words for Mark, that he basically plagiarized a lesser version of Matthew. And yet in the last 200 years, if scholars have discovered more manuscripts than Mark and are seeing the, the beauty of how he wrote, look at the skill it takes to weave this through. Now, yes, God inspired him to write, but God, through a verbal plenary inspiration, he uses the, the, the work of the man and, and, and gives us the work of the man in with his own words that's why we can tell paul from peter from mark and we know the differences and so god in his sovereignty uses mark's skillful writing levels to come in here and show us look what god did look at what he packed into five verses that takes skill it has taken me how long are we in this now 48 minutes to unpack this so far and he wrote it in five verses So look to what God has done. That's the application. Look at what God has done, sons and daughters. We are children of the king, and we just get to benefit from looking at what he has done. My last point, and I know I'm going long here. Point number four. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. The second Adam begins. Point number four. The second Adam begins. So verses 12 and 13 of Mark chapter 1, it says, And immediately the Spirit drove him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. So the first point here is Christ's ministry has now been inaugurated. The Spirit has come. He's revealed himself. This is the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. We have no record in any of the Gospels on anything else of his life except for his birth by Luke and Matthew. Mark chose to not write that, of course, again, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But this is where it gets real. What I mean by that is Christ has now come forward and he has said, I am the true Israelite. God has confirmed that. God has poured out his spirit on him. The wording there for the spirit is indwelling. It came into him. The spirit is now in Christ to manifest the redemptive plan that has been spoken of by God and decreed from before time began. And the first thing the spirit does is drive him into the wilderness further for 40 days and 40 nights He's been equipped for ministry, and now he's going to go out and face the wilderness. He's going to go out and face Satan. That's the first thing that happens. The very first thing. So many times when we, as modern, Western, evangelical Christians, we think, let's be filled with the Spirit. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here, so that nothing bad happens. We don't want to be sick. We want to be rich. We want to be wise. And we want the Spirit to come to us because life gets easier when the Spirit is here. Did life get easier for the Son of God when the Spirit came? No. Now there's a lot of semblance as to why, but I want us to start with the idea of the Spirit doesn't come to make your life easier. The Spirit comes to get you through what He's taking you through. The Spirit comes because you've been redeemed and you're an elect of God and he is going to ensure the promises of God are fulfilled in your life. As an elect child of God, you know what the promises of God are? Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Those are the promises of God to the elect. That's it. Now that's a lot, but I say that's it because so much more has been tagged on to what God promises to his people, but it's almost become comical to our shame. But now that Christ has been inaugurated, his ministry has begun, he is now going out into the wilderness to do what the first Adam failed to do. What did the first Adam fail to do? as the federal head of humanity, he failed to defeat Satan. He succumbed to the temptation of the great liar. And so Christ, as the federal head, the second Adam, the final Adam, came, he is going to show that he defeated Satan where the first Adam failed. There's a reason that he was driven out there. And the 40 days, of course, is full of all kinds of semblance. The the nation of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Moses spent 40 days before he went up to Mount Sinai. Elijah spent 40 days in the wilderness before his big event. Christ is identifying himself with all of them. Coming to say that I am the fulfillment, I am the better prophet. I am the second Adam, the final Adam. And you see this verb is used throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That was 1 Corinthians 15.45. Hebrews 4.14-16 4, through 16 echoes something similar. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ was tempted just as we are, and yet without sin. Christ was tempted just as the first Adam was when he failed, yet Christ was without sin. And there's so much symbolage here. I'm going to move through this rather quickly, but I want us to see this as well. The idea of Christ being thrust. So if you look at verse 12, it says, and immediately the Spirit drove him. The Greek language could be thrust. He was basically put into the desert that reminds us precisely of the language used for the scapegoat for the nation of Israel to carry their sins into the wilderness so that the sins did not abide on the nation of Israel. You can check Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 21. I won't read that to you, but please write it down and study that later. Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 21. The same thrust, the same idea of the scapegoat being put into the wilderness is the same idea that Christ is now being driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. And this defeat of Satan is going to mark the first account, and we're going to see it throughout Mark's Gospel, but this first account of Christ's authority over Satan. Often Mark has been referenced as the record of Christ the demon slayer or Christ the spiritual warrior. Because over and over and over throughout Mark, Jesus demonstrates his authority over Satan and his demons. There's so much fulfillment here in these five verses. The last couple of things I want to point out and then we'll close. There's a statement here that I wanted to draw your attention to. In verse 13, it says, He was with the wild beasts. No other gospel writer that records the temptation of Christ has that phrase. Mark, it's exclusive to Mark and Mark only. There's a couple different interpretations here, but I want to give you what I think is the correct one. So the the wrong interpretations is some think that this is a reference to the first Adam and his naming of the beasts of the earth. I don't think that stands and holds up. Other interpretation is that this is some sort of alliance that Satan had with the beasts of the wilderness. There's no other reference of that in Scripture. I don't don't think that one holds up. But when you look at this passage under who wrote it, where he wrote it, and when he wrote it, it begins to make more sense. So I'd like to give you those backgrounds quickly. Mark wrote this in the city of Rome. In the late A.D. 60s, during the most intense persecution that Christians would have under the Roman Empire, Nero himself. And Nero himself would take Christians and tie them up in the skins of prey animals, deer, the like. And he would throw them to the wild beasts in the Colosseum, where they would be ravaged and torn apart in the Colosseum. And this was known throughout the church of that time. Mark wrote this gospel in Rome to Romans. And Mark, I think the correct interpretation is telling the Christians in Rome, Christ defeated the wild beasts too. Our Savior was thrown into the wild beasts just like you were. Our Redeemer has felt everything that you have felt, experienced what you have experienced. You are not alone for Christ defeated the wild beasts. Would that not bring comfort to those being persecuted in Rome? I think it would. And it matches with the interpretation of who wrote it and when he wrote it. And the last encouraging thing that I want to leave with you today, and I hope you've been encouraged through all of this. This is a lot. This is a lot to handle. It's a lot to wrap your mind around. But I hope it's been encouraging to show you who our Redeemer is and what he fulfilled in the covenant. But the last thing that I'll show you is that in the end of verse 13, it says, And the angels were ministering to him. Once again, this is in the imperfect tense, meaning that it didn't stop. It wasn't just at the end of the 40 days. Sometimes, at least when I was a child, I thought it was. Jesus went to the wilderness for 40 days and he fasted and then Satan came and then the angels came. But Mark gives us a record here in the tense of his wording that the angels ministered to him throughout the 40 days. In other words, Christ was sustained by the Father, by the direction of the Father. And the application here for us is that we really are guarded as being united with Christ, we are upheld and guarded in the same fashion by the servants of God that Jesus was. We are sustained. If the angels were there to sustain Christ, would he not also sustain those he gave to Christ? I want to encourage us to understand that we are sustained by the sovereign God of the universe. That doesn't mean health, that doesn't mean wealth all the time, but it does mean that we will be sustained to glory because of the Father's righteous right hand. In the same way that he supported and ministered to his own son, during his time in the wilderness. So as I conclude, I pray, first of all, that we have seen the beauty displayed in the Trinity. We've seen the different aspects of the person of the Godhead on display in how they work in this particular situation. I hope also that we have seen that the prologue of Mark overall has been this theme of wilderness. We've seen it over and over again. And Mark is viewing it from a, a Jewish perspective and, and sees the significance of the wilderness in both the nation of Israel and the fulfillment seen in the true Israel. And I hope that we have been able to see that together as well. Because in our Western minds, and our modern Western minds, that makes no sense to us on a cursory reading. We, we, don't, we don't come up with that on our own. And Mark has so beautifully rented out for us. And lastly, I hope in conclusion that our prologue, the last last week and this week, that we have come through these 13 verses with a much higher appreciation for the book of Mark. And I hope it has built excitement for you on what's coming because he's he's only gotten 13 verses in. That's as far as we've gotten. And Mark has already laid out all this information for us we get to spend another 58 roughly sermons together going through this book. And I hope you're excited as I am about it because I have been, it has expanded my view of our savior already. And we're two weeks in because I will tell you, I am impacted by my study much more than my trivial words, I'm sure impact you. And God has been so gracious in that. So I hope you're excited. I hope you look to Christ and see that he is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament predicted. He is our Redeemer. He is our Lamb. He is our Savior. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to look and see what you have provided to us in Christ. Thank you for what Mark has recorded here under the inspiration of your spirit and and using his beautiful, skillful words, Lord, to to keep this message for us until today when we're studying it. It's, It's beautiful. We praise you and thank you for your redemptive plan, the fulfillment therein. And I pray that this will be an encouragement to all of us to rest in Christ and what he's done as that Savior throughout this coming week. In your holy name I pray. Amen.